You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Eugene Peterson once wrote, spiritual direction takes place when two people agree to give their full attention to what God is doing and then seek to respond in faith, to give their full attention to what God is doing. This month we are taking a break from our teaching series in the book of Hebrews to go through a short vision series that we're titling Direction. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ involves three very important directions, up in worship, in in fellowship, and out in mission. And today we are looking at that second direction, in, focused on our relationships within the body of Christ with other believers. We're in Acts chapter 2, and if you scroll up or as you look up on the page, at the very beginning of Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the day the Spirit falls upon the church and fills God's people, we read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So this sets the scene for everything to follow. The Spirit came down in power where God's people were together. Title this morning's message, Life Together. Now, do you know, or did you know, the first problem that the Bible addresses in Scripture? The first time God says, you know what, that's not right, and I'm going to fix that. It's the problem of loneliness. It's still a pressing problem today. Surgeon General of the United States said that we are living in the midst of a loneliness epidemic, which is one of the most deadly killers in our time. Isolation is the first thing God says is not good and then seeks to heal it. In fact, we read in Genesis chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And so I will make him a helper fit for him. So here's the question, why is this a problem? Why, Why is this not good? And it's because it wars against our very design. We need community because we were made in the image 
of God who has existed forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Community. We don't just reflect an abstract God, we reflect a communal God. And so God identifies the problem of loneliness and then provides meaningful relationship and he continues to provide for the problem of loneliness. He sends his son Jesus Christ to bring us back into reconciled relationship with the Father. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that God's very presence is within us, comforting us and guiding us, and God provides the church. I just want you to look around for just a moment. Look around. You are experiencing, you are looking at nothing less than God's gracious provision for you. You are looking at the answer the time, to the timeless problem of loneliness in the human experience. You are looking at the answer for your deep need for meaningful connection with others. Now, with that being said, I want to uh, honestly acknowledge a lack in my pastoral leadership. Um, if you've been in our church for a while, you're going to hear communication, and you're going to hear me often say things like, you need to be together. You need to get together. You need to show up. You need to be present. You need to stay committed and stay connected. And I stand behind all of those instructions, by the way. But I have recognized that I have not been very good at describing what happens next. Helping cultivate ways to deeply connect once we are together in the same room. Showing how to love well. Showing how to serve one another well. Showing how to be vulnerable with one another. Maybe you've heard these instructions like, hey, sign up or show up and stay connected. And you did. And then you realize you're really disappointed by that. Maybe you showed up and then you struggled to connect. Maybe you were there and then you faced obstacles. And so I've been working with this wrong assumption that if you just sort of get Christians together in the same room, they're going to know how to relate to one another. They're going to naturally connect. And that is not entirely true. Back in December, my youngest son and I were on a little bit of a road trip, and we just turned on a, an endless Christmas song Spotify playlist. And it took us through the whole catalog of so many different songs from different eras and different genres and this sad Christmas song comes on, and it talks about being back home for the holidays and being surrounded by family and trying to have a good time but feeling really, really out of place, so alone. And the chorus stood out to me. It said this, you don't have to be alone to be lonesome. You don't have to be alone to be lonesome. That is the sad irony about relationships. You can feel alone while together. In fact, that, that's the premise of Sherry Turkle's best-selling book, Alone Together. And in it, she talks about that loneliness has always been a human problem, but it is distinctly a problem for us today. Because we live in an era where technology has promised to provide meaningful relationships and to keep us connected with, with other people, and yet it's made it worse we're surrounded by people. We've never been in more contact with others. Scroll through your contacts list. And yet we've never been more starved for meaningful connection. Many of us are alone together. Some of us are alone in marriages. Some people are alone in their families. Some people are alone in the workplace. Some people are alone in their friendship circles. And the sad 
truth is many people are alone in the church. A researcher named Susan Metz found that churchgoers today experience loneliness as frequently as Americans in general and slightly more often than those who don't go to church. So the church has a loneliness problem. About one in six people, 16% of people that go to church say that they feel lonely all the time. An additional 19% of people say they feel lonely daily. And then an additional 24% of churchgoers say they feel lonely once in a while. So statistically, more than half of us are here present and yet struggling to connect with one another. It's not just a problem of showing up. The problem is experiencing meaningful connection once we are together. That's what I want to put our finger on today. That's that's the honest problem that I, I hope to bring forward and address and apply the truths of Scripture to today. So I want to cast a vision Uh, for cultivating meaningful relationships with other believers at reality, which depends, if you're taking notes, which depends first on a shared devotion. Look with me again in verse 42. And they devoted themselves. So we looked at this briefly last week, but this word devotion in the first century was a military term. And it was used in settings where it meant in lock step, moving in the same direction, steadfast adherence and unwavering commitment to a shared goal. So this is really important because it means that meaningful relationships depend on a unity that is built around shared devotion. This sense that when you turn to the person to your left or your right, you know deep in your bones, we are moving in the same direction. We are in this together. We are moving toward the same end. This, by the way, is at the heart of our membership commitments. This is what membership is intended to do. We are committing to one another to pursue the same goals, to remain aligned around shared values and shared biblical vision. So to contrast this, the Bible gives us an illustration of when this is not happening, it refers to people being, and maybe you've heard this phrase before, it refers to people being unequally yoked. Most often in the Bible, this is applied to marriages. And the question is this, how can you be together with someone for the rest of your life in such an intimate way while you're moving spiritually in two different directions? It is a recipe for disaster. So if you're a believer, do not marry an unbeliever. But it also applies to relationships in general. Unequally yoked. So the the image is of two oxen pulling a heavy load. And they are bound together by this large wooden thing called a yoke. Moving in different directions. Pulling against each other in a way that will cause pain, frustration, And eventually discord. Eventually the thing is going to break open. So this is important because togetherness depends on a shared devotion. Now, don't get me wrong. We can and we will experience strong bonds with people outside the church around other shared devotions. 
Like in the fitness world, for instance. So I'm told. I'm just put that out there. I'm not claiming anything today. I'm just being real. People share a profound connection based on shared experiences and shared pursuits like clean eating and gains and competitions and so on. But the question is, is the thing that you are pursuing going to last? Will it be able to sustain your relationships for the long haul? And the answer is obviously no. Because one day your body is going to get old. And it's going to break down. And it's not going to be able to do what it does today. And you're going to find out the painful way that you have centered your relationships around goals that you can no longer pursue or achieve which then means that you are in a space that you no longer belong. Let me tolerate you as an emeritus or whatever for a minute, but you're going to find yourselves on the outskirts because you can't do what they do anymore. And the relationships that felt so solid and so life-giving are going to fail you because what was holding you together is fragile. Like anything else in all of this world, even the best things Relationships that are based on anything or anyone that can fail will fail. They're destined to fall apart. But what we're talking about is the very opposite of this. We are talking about relationships that are built on something, or more specifically, someone that cannot fail. Our unity is based on the resurrected Christ, whom the Bible describes as the chief cornerstone that holds the whole building together. Our unity is based and built around the one who will not let us down, who will not change, who doesn't break down or wear out or go away, but lives and reigns forever. So this is profound. Because what it means is that our relationships with other believers can and should last as long as Christ lives. Even the healthiest marriages will end in death. But what we have with brothers and sisters in Christ will transcend death and last into Eternity. Speaking of eternity, the Apostle John in the scene in Revelation chapter 7, he's getting this glimpse of heaven. And he says that he sees this great multitude that no one can number, so big that you couldn't even count if you tried, from every tribe and tongue and nation. And all them together gathered around the throne of God and specifically the Lamb who is Jesus. And they're singing together in unison one song, and yet what we can assume here is many languages. One song, many languages, as one giant choir. So what makes this kind of unity, if you think unity within a local church is difficult, think about this scene. What makes this kind of unity with such a diverse group of people possible? It's simple. It works because it's centered on Jesus. He is the gravitational pull that keeps everything and everyone in orbit. Which means then the moment that God's people center themselves on anything other than Christ, they're going to fall into disunity. 
I would go as far as to say this. I believe that God has intentionally established the church so that it does fall apart and so that it should fall apart if it centers themselves on anything but Jesus. That should be our prayer for reality. If it's ever anything about, about anything other than Christ, let it close its doors and let us go somewhere else life-giving. So it's an election year. We've been here, guys. You've been a Christian for at least four years. You know the hell we're about to go through right now. And we know that this kind of disunity is absolutely combustible. I cannot tell you how many times I heard people from both sides of the aisle say, I don't even know how you can be a Christian and have voted for XYZ. So let's just be brass tacks here. We are not going to do that, reality. We're just not going to do that. We do not stand for that. And we have to be really clear that our unity is not based on our shared political affiliations. If you are looking for a community where everyone votes like you, please look elsewhere. Nor anything else, not based on our shared ethnicities or our shared hobbies or our shared tax brackets or our shared preferences or our shared passions for cultural issues, our shared styles of worship or preaching styles or whatever. We are together as long as we are together in Christ. So how can we experience meaningful, lasting relationships here? How can we make sure that reality is the kind of place where people connect, stay connected, and then grow in that relational connection? we got to keep it centered on Jesus. The Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians these words. He said, for I decided... It was a conscious decision to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this does not mean that other pressing issues didn't matter to him or to the church. It doesn't mean that he didn't speak into specific topics. But it does mean that the primary message, what it all pointed back to, was the gospel of Jesus. The good news that God, the creator of all things, loves us and has come to rescue us from sin, Satan, and death, and to bring us into a renewed life within his everlasting kingdom. That he did this by sending his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to live obediently, die sacrificially, rise again on the third day power, uh, powerfully, and ascend to the right hand of God to represent our humanity in heaven, and has given us his Holy Spirit to now empower us to live transformed lives that bless the world around us until the day that Christ returns to make all things new. I am committing to you to preach that Christ to preach that gospel. You're gonna be like, you always speak the same message. Yeah, because it's all about Jesus. But I wanna commission you too. I, I want this to be personal. I wanna commission you to do the same thing. In your conversations and in your interactions with others in the church, to be Christ-centered. This is not just about what I or someone on a Sunday morning preaches from the Sunday being, or from the pulpit. Being a Christ-centered church has to do with the whole of our interactions with others. That's where the rubber meets the road. So is it fine to talk about work and sports and the weather? Of course. But let's devote ourselves to being a Christ-centered church in not just what is preached 
from the pulpit on Sunday, but what we are saying to other people in our text message conversations. When you're catching up with someone after church, when you're, when you're meeting up with someone over coffee or dinner or whatever the interaction to keep Christ center in all of our interactions. And the more that you keep the subject matter of your conversations centered on Jesus Christ, I promise you, the deeper connection that you're gonna experience with other believers in the church. The deeper the connection you're gonna experience. The more you pray for others and the more that you ask for others to pray for you, the deeper connection you're gonna experience with them. The more that you ask What's God doing in your life? The more that you point out, here's what God, I think God's doing in your life. The more that you challenge people to persevere in the faith, the more connected you will be with them. I promise you that. Secondly, you guys still with me? Shared lives. Shared lives. There's a word, if you've been around Christianity for a long time, there's a buzzword in this passage, and the word is fellowship. And if you've been around Christianity for a real long time, you know the Greek on this one. Which is? Okay, that's okay. I, I saw some mouths, go ahead. Koinonia, okay, you're there, you're just pretending. Koinonia is a rich word that means so much more than just being together. All kinds of people get together to do all sorts of things, like watch the game last night, or to talk about work, or to reminisce about the old days. Fellowship, however, means an active, mutual participation in the life of Christ. A mutual, active participation in the life of Christ. And this word here, fellowship, is the answer, God's answer to the loneliness problem that humanity has seemed to face since the beginning of time. And it's found here in the sharing of lives. Let me illustrate this. In uh, another letter in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says this. And listen to this intimate language here. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. The word here for selves is souls. So what Paul is saying is that we were pleased to bear our souls with you. We are open and honest and let you see everything. Now do you sense how like uncomfortably intimate that description is here? When I think about my closest friendships and when I think about other people who have close relationships as well, There's a common thread, and it's this, that strong relationships often emerge out of challenging circumstances. Maybe you face this as well. You go through something like traumatic or really challenging or some form of suffering, and there's this deep bond that is forged in the fire, in affliction. And it's not necessarily the challenge itself that builds strong relationships, but it's the honesty and the vulnerability that occurs in the midst of the challenge that then takes relationships to new depths. It's when you're like have no more energy or no more capacity and wherewithal to, ha- to hold up the facade. You're just too tired, too done to, to, to front. And you're just like, this is me. This is the whole me. This is it. Take it or leave it. 
And it happens when people bear their souls. They let their guards down. They get real. If you want to be close to people, and that's the question you have to ask, if you want to be close to people, you're going to have to get real with them. There is no shortcut to meaningful, deep relationships apart from honesty and vulnerability. No shortcut. And while suffering together can be a catalyst for vulnerability, the real challenge is willingly choosing vulnerability, not being forced into it, but willingly bearing your souls. That's a problem for us. Again, Sherry Turkle in her book Alone Together, she said, we are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Doesn't that describe us? We want to be close but just not too close. We want to be known but not that known. And because of this fear, we actually, it may be keeping us on the outside, on the fringes of meaningful relationships, always feeling like we're not quite in and always kind of looking from the outside in, like I want to be a part of that, but I'm afraid. Not willing to have that conversation, reluctant to return that phone call, afraid to join that small group, unwilling to commit to the church, fearful of being fully known. Now, let me say this. I understand that there are hurdles to connecting. And this church, hear me clearly, this church, like every other church, is full of sinners who struggle with selfishness, prejudice, exclusiveness. Like we all, we all contribute to barriers of belonging for most people that walk through that door. And the reality is that you're gonna find that at every single church. So we gotta put that on the table and be honest about it. But your struggle may also be the result of your fear of being vulnerable. You actually may be fighting your own reluctance of bearing your souls with other people. That's something you have to honestly consider today. That there is no easy, pain-free way to do this. And here's the challenge. It does not come with a guarantee that it's going to go well. There is always a risk when you're honest with someone. There's always that risk of, are they going to receive me and listen to me, or are they going to be like, whoa, sucks to suck, man. But I'm telling you right now, it's the only livable option. It's the only livable option. C.S. Lewis said it best. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Oh, don't worry, it won't be broken. But worse, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Now, what we have to remember here is that as we're talking about uh, sharing our lives and choosing vulnerability, we have to remember that God is not asking us to do anything that he was unwilling to do himself. Jesus willingly chose 
vulnerability for the sake of relationship with us. He made himself emotionally vulnerable. Jesus was bearing his soul with others. Jesus experienced all the fallout and the risk of bearing his soul with others. He was misunderstood. He experienced rejection, shame, sorrow. He was despised. He also made himself physically vulnerable. Jesus experienced hunger, poverty, thirst, He was whipped, he was beaten, he was nailed to a Roman cross, he was crucified. The Bible says that by his wounds, very real physical wounds, we're healed. And he made himself spiritually vulnerable. He endured the just wrath of God on behalf of sinners. He was condemned in our place. He entered into the human experience to the ability of saying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about it, the only way that we can experience a meaningful relationship with God is because Jesus willingly shared his entire life with us. He held nothing back. And he shared his life with us so that we now can share our lives with others. This is at the core of good, faithful doctrine of salvation that God did not wait for us to initiate relationship with him But God initiated relationship with us. While we're still sinners, Christ came. The Apostle John would say, it wasn't that you loved him first, he loved us first. He was kind to us first. He drew near to us first. And now this is the motivation for us to initiate going and moving towards others to share our lives with them. To initiate that conversation to initiate that long-awaited apology. To initiate being the one to break the awkward silence. Stop waiting on others to do what God has called you to do. Christ initiated so that you now can as well. Thirdly, this depends on shared belongings. Look at me again in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So let me ask you a question. Should a church have everything in common? Feels like a trick question, doesn't it? Because you just read it, but you're like, I don't know. Well, it depends on what you mean. Because if you mean that we share all the same preferences... Same cultural backgrounds, same political leanings, same spiritual gifts, same passions, then the answer is no. That's what we would call a homogenous church. That doesn't accurately reflect God or display the reality of heaven on earth. So what's being described here? Because it said they have everything in common. Well, the emphasis is on things. In fact, the very next verse interprets what's being said here, verse 45 And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. Later in Acts chapter 4, we read this. Now the full number of those who who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I remember that scene from Finding Nemo where all the seagulls are waiting. And what are they saying? Mine, 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 mine. It's the natural disposition of the human heart. No one has to teach your child to say mine. It just comes out. But the closer you move to Christ, 
the less you find the word mine in your vocabulary. Willie James Jennings called this the trinity of possessions, time, talent, treasure, all being offered to others. Now, to clarify this is not, as maybe some of you are like, mm, feeling suspicious about this, this is not a form of communism, so breathe deep. We're not recommending communism here. This is not something that was legislated. Nothing was being forced on people. This is something that the church did freely and voluntarily, and here, cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. Not because they were told they had to, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit that he was doing in their hearts. He was freeing them from finding their security and their sense of hope for the future in stuff because they had found it completely in Jesus Christ in a way that now freed them up to invest their lives in the kingdom of God and in the lives of others in the body of Christ. Paul would say in Galatians chapter six, so then as you have opportunity, well, when is that? I don't know, tax returns are coming. So you don't have to get real creative. Like when you're like, what should we do with this? Consider this verse. And before you're like, oh, I'm not even suggesting tithing here. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. So let me challenge you. If you're getting a tax return, consider marking a certain percentage to give to someone else. Maybe someone in need, maybe a stranger you don't know, or maybe someone that you do know and you just want to bless them. You just want to show them that God cares and loves them. As you have opportunity to give to others, especially those who are in the household of faith. 2020 was a hard year. In fact, we're still feeling the effects of 2020, especially those of us who experienced loss and even death in our families. But there was one shining moment. Well, there were many, but there was a shining moment in our church. I don't know who came up with the idea, but we formed this, web, this page on our website with two simple buttons. And one was, I need help. And the other was, I can help. And by and large, we were overwhelmed by the amount of people clicking on the second button saying, I, I don't know what I've got. I've got extra toilet paper. I've, I've kept my job. I've got some time and resources that I can help people in need. We were overwhelmed. We had too much to give and too little need. Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Primarily, this means towards the Lord, but don't like totally spiritualize this. It's very practical. Where you give money, your heart's gonna follow. And if you want deep, meaningful relationships, you're gonna have to be generous to other people. Just revving up every Sunday morning. I don't know who it is, but I appreciate it. The, the, it's the weed blower or the, the leaf blower and the, the big block engine. Okay. Let me tell us a little story. Um, Years ago, Michelle and I, and two kids at the time, sold everything that we had to move overseas to help plant a church in the UK. When we ended up coming back, we came back with very little, everything that we could fit in some suitcases. And we started over from scratch, essentially. We had virtually nothing to our name, and we came back in the middle of a recession, which was just awesome. 
And so we lived on reduced rent. We borrowed cars. We ate beans and rice, WIC, EBT, the whole nine yards. We experienced everything that comes with having nothing. And I'll never forget one night, Michelle and I are up. I think the kids were in bed. It's at a time where we're stressed about finances. We're praying about the Lord's provision. We don't know how we're going to make ends meet. And we're sitting there in our living room, and all of a sudden, we hear some rattling at the door. Now, we live in Stockton, so at first I thought someone was breaking in. But I realized it wasn't the door, it was the mail drop. Walk over to the mail drop and I find a gift card to a grocery store. And I intentionally did not open the door because I didn't want to rob them of their blessing and their reward. And I still to this day, like 15 years later, I have no idea who dropped that in our mail slot, but I do know for certain it was God's answer to our prayers. And it may not seem like a lot, like big deal. It was everything to us because it was a reminder that God sees us, that our church loves us, and this is worth it. This is worth it. So let's commit to being generous with what God has given us, and then also let's commit to being humble and honest when we're in need. Because some of us know it's sometimes harder to ask for help than it is to give it. We gotta be willing to do both, amen? In my very limited time I have left, one just brief last point. We're gonna cover this topic extensively next week. Meaningful relationships and connections depend on shared tables. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in homes They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So the church gathered for public worship, but then also regularly they met in homes. One key factor to the statistics that I read to you earlier about the church today and loneliness is a lack of hospitality. According to this researcher who I referenced earlier, Susan Metz, Only one-third of Christian households in America practice hospitality at least once a month. And then, of that one-third that do practice hospitality, a majority of the people that they're having over for dinner or whatever in their homes are their own biological family members. So only a small percentage of a small percentage of Christians are having non-family guests in their homes at their table. This is a problem because hospitality is vital to the life of discipleship. The the New Testament tells us in Romans chapter 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. First Peter 4, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And this one's crazy. Hebrews chapter 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. What's that mean? I don't know. I don't know. I'll study that when we get to it later in Hebrews. Today, we think of hospitality as warm vibes, setting the aesthetics for when, you know, our friends or our family members or someone that's really dignified comes to our house. It's making sure the mood is right. It's making sure that all the food and, you know, the play sets are set out right just in case someone wants to snap a photo for the gram later tonight. But biblically and historically, Here it is. Hospitality means making room at the table for those who do not belong. It means creating a welcoming environment for people that are different than us. 
creating pathways for outsiders to become more and more insiders. The table is the place where people are known and they get to know us as well. Maybe it means that if you're a family who has family meals, inviting a single individual to come and participate in the family rhythm of your life. Maybe it means that because you have a table, you're going to intentionally invite someone that you know doesn't have a dinner table. Maybe it means you have an established family and you want to invite a college student to come experience just a warm meal and just a little taste of home that they're missing. This is going to be the emphasis of next week's sermon, as I mentioned, but all throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, what we see is that some of the most meaningful conversations, some of the most quotable parts of the Gospels was Jesus having meals with people down to the point where John the Beloved places his head on the chest of Jesus so close. Where are they? They're dining. They're reclining at table. And it was essentially Jesus' way of saying, hey, you know what? You, know, you want to know what the kingdom of God is all about? Come share a meal with me, and I'll show you. And his hospitality became the primary expression of God's grace on earth. As Jesus welcomed outcasts, as he welcomed strangers, as he welcomed ones in need, as he welcomed those who were outside the lines of religion, and so on. In reality, the pulpit may be the place where the gospel is preached, but I believe that our tables are going to be the place where the gospel is embodied in this church. And so my prayer for you is that God would cause your table, whatever he has given you, whatever means he's entrusted to your life and your family, that he would cause those places to become doors of hope and a clear welcome to those who do not yet belong. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that